Amen. Good to be with you, Fellowship Church. The Lord be with you. It is good to be gathered together. My name is Nate Skipper, and I'm one of the pastors here where we routinely say that our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. We say that routinely because we seek to live into that. If you are new or visiting with us this morning, welcome. We are glad that you are here. And if you would like to make yourself known to us, we have some connection cards that are available at the back of the sanctuary or at the Welcome Center that we uh, can get to know you a little bit more if you're so willing to share that with us. If you've been visiting with us for a little while and you want to take a a next step, if you will, in your relationship with Fellowship Church, uh, you can uh, do that at our Discover Fellowship class, which will be happening over the next three Wednesdays. Uh, And it's an opportunity uh, to get to know some folks uh, at Fellowship, but also get to know uh, a little bit more about the ministry here and consider if you want to uh, join officially uh, our our body. That will be uh, happening starting this Wednesday. But for those of you that have been a part of our fellowship for a while, uh, you might know the name Mary Osink, and I regret to inform you that she passed away this weekend on Friday afternoon, uh, and she will be celebrating her life uh, in a funeral service this Wednesday at 11 a.m. We weren't able to get that in the bulletin, obviously, because it happened so late. Well, today is a special day, not because it's Sunday and we have the chance to worship together, not because it's beautiful weather again uh, today after a beautiful day yesterday and some of us got to clean out our sheds and our garages and do all kinds of work. That made it a good day. Today is special not just because of those things and not because we're here together as one body, but because today is World Communion Sunday. World Communion Sunday is a day in which we remember uh, that God's vision for this world and that his kingdom will, that we'll, soon, uh, we'll soon experience uh, is of all tribes and nations, of all people from all over the world. And we don't just live in, look forward to that vision, but that vision is happening today through local churches across the globe. And so today with uh, all of those congregations across the world, we are celebrating World Communion. And we're going to do that in the service, but we're also going to do that in lunch after this service. So please stick around. Uh, You might have seen the menu, which includes uh, food from all over the world, uh, especially those special uh, pieces of meat called hot dogs uh, that will be served uh, for anyone that would like those as well. 
You also might have noticed a little commotion in the atrium, and that is because today is Parish Sunday. It's an opportunity to uh, get to know your uh, CLC elder and deacon, which are matched up to parishes. I encourage you to find your parish on the map. You can see kind of where you live. Go put a pin in the map, and then make sure that your name and address is right. Uh, it's a way for uh, you to get to know our parish uh, elders and deacons, like I said, uh, but also to make yourself known to us, and that's a great way uh, to kind of, uh, yeah, do that. Well, World Communion Sunday uh, was actually started by a local pastor uh, some almost 100 years ago, and the vision was that all churches uh, would be able to celebrate this day so that we might know one another and care for one another in really meaningful ways. I'm happy uh, and I'm proud of Fellowship Church because uh, we seek to do that through our mission partnerships. You might not have known this, but at least every, for all of our offerings that we collect together, 11% of that, uh, those funds go directly to partners, both locally and globally, that are seeking to manifest Christ's kingdom uh, here on earth. We contribute by giving online uh, and also in the offering plates that are at the back of the sanctuary. At this time, I'd like to invite Uzana and Robbie forward, uh, along with Jasmine. These are my friends from Hope College. They happen to be one student, one faculty, and one staff person, uh, but they also know some other languages, and they will help us uh, lean into uh, the global nature uh, of our faith uh, through the wor words of Psalm 86 and uh, in some of their, uh, the languages that they know. You will also play a part in this call to worship, so you can follow along on the screen. You, O oh Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call on you. Gran eres Dios. Great are you, Lord. Give ear, O oh Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my cry of supplication. In the day of my trouble, I call on you, for you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and bow down before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Great are you, Lord. For you are a great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Gran eres Dios. Great are you, Lord. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I, that we may walk in your truth. Give ear to give me an undivided heart to revere your name. O Lord, hear our prayer. Let us stand and sing together.
As we pray together this morning, friends, I invite you to pray with your eyes open and follow along on the screen. Um, as um, I pray this morning with you, um, I will pray the words after the word one, and I invite you to pray the words after uh, the word all. So would you pray with me? Dear friends, let us love one another because love comes from God. Whoever loves is a child of God and knows God. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. The peace that Christ gives is to guide us in the decisions we make. 
For it is to this peace that God has called us together into one body. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. With his own body, he broke down the walls of separation and by his death on the cross, Christ destroyed our divisions. Jesus Christ, life of the world and of all creation, forgive our separation and grant us peace and unity. Amen.
and brothers in Christ, we are told in the scriptures that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In a moment, I'm going to dismiss our kids to their Sunday school, but before that, we want to share the peace of Christ with one another. It is because of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection that we have peace with God and with one another. And so the peace of Christ be with you. As you are comfortable, I invite you to share a sign of that peace, and the, the kids can head to Sunday school now. Friends, you may be seated, and the Lord be with you. Will you join me in prayer? Oh, Lord, our God, as we prepare again to open your good book, I admit from the very start that I can't do this preaching thing without you. It is, after all, your word, and these are your people, and it is your deep desire to set the captives free, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the world, and to lead us in the way everlasting. If I can be any part of that today, oh God, thank you. And if it happens, when it happens, that your will is done, we join with the psalmist who says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name. Be the glory. And all God's people said, amen. I keep a preaching journal that tracks all of my thoughts on most of the sermons I preach, and then I preach about 20% of what is in here. The rest of it I call fondly sermon scraps, the stuff that doesn't make the cut. 
In the front of this journal, I've kept some ideas from others, wise words about preaching in general. And this week in particular, the Holy Spirit called to mind for me one of the quotes that's in the front of this journal that I'd like to share with you today. It says that the task of preaching is many things. Sometimes it is proclamation. Sometimes it is education and edification. Sometimes it is inspiration. Sometimes it is confrontation. But preaching is also always pastoral care. It's for that reason that I have opted this morning to preach to you without a pulpit because I want to be with you in it together. Our story for today is a familiar one. It's the story of the crossing of the Red Sea. God's people, once enslaved in Egypt, have now been wonderfully set free, but yet almost immediately they find themselves desperately stuck. Stuck, stuck. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, as we might say today. And so before we read the text, I want to invite you to call to mind a situation in your own life today in which you too might feel stuck. Maybe you're stuck in a strained relationship. Maybe you're stuck in a bad attitude or a bad reputation. Maybe you're stuck in an aging body or stuck in a secret or stuck in an addiction. Maybe you're feeling desperately stuck because of infidelity or infertility. Maybe you see all too clearly the Christian church stuck in decline. Maybe you are all too aware that our world at large is stuck in greed, stuck on war, stuck in hate. Whatever stuck situation you're calling to mind right now, I invite you to write it down. And if you got nothing that you're feeling stuck about, thanks be to God, and you can ignore me for the next 20 minutes, okay? Today's story is, however, the paradigmatic story of God unstucking the stuck people. It is the story of God making a way where there seems to be no way. And the story seems to have been written down for us, not only that we would remember it, but also that we would reenact it, live it again. Unlike other Old Testament stories, which are not to be repeated, stories like the flood, or the Tower of Babel, or when Samson took a donkey of a jawbone, uh, the, the jawbone of a donkey, and slaughtered a whole crowd. I hope you're not carrying around the jawbone of a donkey today. Many of those stories are not to be repeated. But the Exodus story happened and is still happening. It is both historical and liturgical, and we are invited to interpret it both literally and symbolically. And so you might picture Egypt as representing all the powers of evil in the world. You might represent slavery as sin. The Israelites are God's people anywhere. Moses foreshadows Jesus and the Red Sea. The waters of the Red Sea, of course, foreshadow the waters of baptism, which bring us into new life together. So as we read the story from the book that we love this morning, I invite you to keep those things in mind and also your particular stuck situation. And hear these words from Exodus chapters 13 and 14, where it says this. When Pharaoh let the people go, 
God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that way was shorter. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. Chapter 14, verse 10. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Did we not say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of the Israelites' army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the commentaries I read this week about this particular text made me want to throw it across the room. Not because it's wrong, it's mostly right. It's just so shouldy. I have to say that carefully. Should e. It is very shouldy, this commentary about the situation of the Israelites in their stuck place. It's really shouldy. It offers trite truism to them, numbers one, two, and three, when the Israelites are stuck facing an uncrossable sea ahead and an undefeatable army behind, this offers up something like three points, a poem, and a prayer, and the expectation that your life is just all better now, unless, of course, you're normal. It reminds me of Job's friends offering their advice in his hard times where Job is inclined to say thanks, but no thanks. Or of another time in my life when I felt particularly stuck and a true friend of mine said, with, with good intentions, of course, has God ever failed you yet? And I'm like, well, no. But this situation hasn't happened yet. That's what it's like when you're stuck, right? 
So rather than the shoddy commentary, I've resonated instead this week with John Lennon, who said in one of his lesser-known songs, a lyric that says, life is what happens while you are making other plans. So it was for the Israelites. Their great escape plan, now accomplished, has now left them stuck in the wilderness. And they are stuck, stuck. They can't go forward and they can't go back. They can't go back. Behind them is the Egyptian army, a world superpower. And the Israelites are not soldiers. They have been slaves for 430 years. And when they left Egypt, they were well-fed and well-dressed. That's what the story tells us. They took food and jewelry from the people that they left behind. They did not have weapons. This is not an army. If the Israelites sought to go back, they would face either complete annihilation or continued enslavement. They can't go back. They also can't go forward. They're not swimmers. The Red Sea is right in front of them. It is an uncrossable sea. In fact, most ancient people were not swimmers. Ancient people more typically feared the sea. Fun fact of the day is that uh, uh, swimming did not become an Olympic sport until the year 1896, millennia later. Even the normal swimming stroke that we usually use, it's called the trudgeon, named after the guy who invented it, introduced it. That came in 1873, three and a half millennia after this story happened. The Israelites were not swimmers. They had been slaves, and you don't get too many holidays at the sea when you're in slavery. They couldn't go forward. They couldn't go back, and they couldn't go forward. They were stuck. I wonder if you can relate in your situations today. By choice or by force, the old thing is now gone, and the new thing is not here yet. You can't go back. You can't go back. You can't unsay the thing that's already been said. You can't undo the thing that's already been done. You can't bring back what's now gone. You can't return to innocence. You can't undiagnose the diagnosis. You can't rewind the clock on a relationship. You can't live in the past. You can't keep doing what isn't working. You can't go back. But you also can't go forward. You can't wish the cancer away. You can't control the person sitting right next to you. You can't forgive your own sin. You can't make the craving stop. You can't fix the unfixable. You can't swim across the Red Sea. You can't go forward. So if the Exodus story is the paradigmatic story of God unstucking the stuck people, I'm wondering... What truths can we glean from it for our life situations today? A few things I've noticed. First, notice that God takes the people on the roundabout way. Did you notice that when we read the text? There was a direct route, a short route, and they did not take it. That way was called the Via Maris, the way of the sea, the expected route that everybody would take and God did not take them on that route. God took them around and particularly through the wilderness and to the Red Sea. For any of us who might be feeling stuck today and seeking a quick fix, this is a little disheartening, isn't it? Reminds me of the phrase that many have said about this Exodus story, that it took God one day to get the people out of Egypt. 
but it takes another 40 years to get Egypt out of the people. So once upon a time, there was a sage, an old sage, who sat at the crossroads, a fork in a road, and a young traveler came to this particular sage and asked the sage, what is the way to the town, to the city? And the sage said, well, this way is the short but long route, and this way is the long but short route. The young traveler, of course, preferring expediency, took this way, the way they thought to be short. And so she set out on her travels, and lo and behold, it didn't take too long, and the road was not that difficult. She ended up, sure enough, at the city, only at the side of the city, and there was a great wall there with no entrance. You can't get in. So she goes back to the sage and says, you said this was the short route. And the sage says, yes, but I also said it was long. And so then she goes out and takes the other way, the long but short route. And that way is, of course, long and difficult and treacherous and all the various things. But by the end of it, she does arrive at the city, at the city gates, which are also open. God sent the Israelites on the roundabout route, the not direct route, the long but short route, if you will. And that route was by all means Frustrating, difficult, and confusing. Even the rationale for which God sent them on it doesn't make sense. God takes them on the roundabout route, it says, in order to escape Egypt, but the Pharaoh chases anyways. God takes them on the roundabout route so that they won't want to go back, and they want to go back anyways. God takes them on the roundabout route so that they will avoid war, and they face war Anyways, the only sense that I can make of it is that often, from God's view, the journey is at least as important as the destination. And apparently, God is concerned not only with the place that he intends to bring us, but also with the kind of people that we'll be when we get there. And so I wonder, in your situation of stuckness, what would you miss out on? if there were a quick fix? Who are you becoming in the midst of the struggle that you might not become otherwise? I mean, consider this. If God were to have simply teleported the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land, what would they be like? How would they live into their new freedom when they got to that new place? Probably in the Egyptian way. That's all they knew. The roundabout way for them becomes a new school in, a, in the ways of God, a new school of life. One of my favorite books that I've read through the years, time and again actually, is a book by Eugene Peterson called A Long Obedience. Its subtitle is Discipleship in an Instant Society. It resists our desire to take the short route, the microwaved life. The title is actually based on a quote from one of humanity's most famous atheists, from Frederick Nietzsche, one who doesn't buy into all of this stuff. And, and yet Frederick Nietzsche writes in a book called uh, Beyond Good and Evil. He says the essential thing in heaven and on earth is that there should be a long obedience in the same direction. And there thereby results and has always resulted in the long run something that makes life worth living. And so the Israelites set out 
from Egypt, following God on the long but short route, the roundabout way. It's the first thing I notice in the text. Second thing, I wonder if you noticed also the conflicting messages that happen in the messy middle. The conflicting messages that happen in the messy middle. According to the Midrash, which is a, a Jewish way of studying the text, surrounding the actual story with some playful interpretations, according to the Midrash, a debate broke out among the Israelites as they were stuck, stuck alongside the Red Sea. And I bet you can relate. When the people were in their stuck place, some said, let's give up. Let's just throw ourselves into the sea. Let's give up before anything really happens. Others said, let's go back. Kind of like a dog returning to its vomit. Like a kid who gives up on the dream of being an astronaut. Like an addict going back to the addiction. Some said, let's go back to Egypt. Still others said, let's fight. Let's take matters into our own hands. And even if it costs us everything, let's give everything. Even if we lose it all, let's fight. And a fourth group said, let's pray, which was their way of saying, this doesn't feel only spiritual. Let's make it only spiritual. Let's pray. Whether these debates were happening in the Israelite camp, I don't really know. But I bet you've considered some of those ideas in your situations of stuckness. It is tempting to think, I'll give up. I'll give in. I'll get even. I'm going to spiritualize everything. What caught my attention in the text, however, is that there is a conflicting message, seemingly, a paradoxical message that happens right there in the middle. And I put it on a chart for you to see. In chapter 14, verses 14 and 15, Moses says something and God says something else. Moses says, be still. And I've got other translations up there for you. Keep still, stay calm, be silent. It's basically saying, do nothing. Uh, it's the word there that's used is the one that's also used in the Psalms when, when the faithful folks are complaining that God is not answering our prayers. God is silent. God is not doing anything. It's that term. Moses says, let's do nothing. On the other side, however, in the very next verse, God speaks up and says what seems to be the opposite. Move on. Go forward. Get moving. Break camp. Literally, the word means pull up the tent pegs. And so rather than doing what we often do, picking one of these all or nothing sides, let go and let God do nothing, or take matters into your own hands because God is obviously sleeping, it is instead a paradoxical message that we live into in that very messy middle place. We trust God with everything, and we do the faithful something. It seems to me, actually, that the farmers know this best. It's the farmers who have to, by the very nature of their work, they have to understand their divine partnership. The farmer knows that if they want a harvest, it's their job to plow the field, to plant the seed, and to harvest the crops. But they also know full well that they are completely dependent upon God to provide seeds that germinate, sunshine and rain, and even the miracle of growth. The farmer can't do the things that God must, and God won't do the things that the farmer should. And so it seems to be a little bit in these situations that we have of stuckness too. We are invited, like the Israelites long ago, when we feel stuck too, to trust God in everything. 
because God can do the only essential thing, but also that we are invited to do the faithful something in the midst of our situations. It's paradoxical in the messy middle. The last thing I hope you noticed in the text today is that true unstuckness only happens as God opens the way. There's a phrase that I've come to love. I borrow it from the Quakers. They say, as way opens. It's kind of like we might otherwise say, God willing, or if we would say, I'll be there, or plan on it, looking towards some possible future, the Quakers would say, I'll proceed forward as way opens. It's a simple way of believing God to be a way maker, and especially in regard to the most important stuff in life, to trust that God will make a way where there seems to be no way. And I think I would be remiss today if I failed to say to you that no matter how stuck we might feel today, God has made a way In the Exodus story, it was God who literally parted the seas and the people proceeded forward as the way opened. They walked through on dry ground. God then will later promise to do the same kind of thing for his people ever since. God promises through the prophet Isaiah to unstuck the stuck people, to make a way in the wilderness, to offer a stream in the desert places. And then later in the Gospels, when Jesus is surrounded by his disciples. It's Doubting Thomas who finally says to Jesus in his own stuck situation, Doubting Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How are we to know the way? And Jesus says back, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see, the way that God has made is not a particular belief or behavior. It's a person. And of that person, the ones who follow him, they are the ones who have been accused, not complimented, but accused of being followers of the way because he is the way and he is the one who is our way maker. When we are truly stuck in life, when it seems like we have no other options but to trust the one who is the way, we do that and we proceed forward as way opens which has me wondering, I wonder what Jesus would say about your situation of stuckness today. And I wonder what it would look like for you to trust him as he makes a way forward for you. I heard the story recently of a man who had a stroke, and because of it, he lost the function of his left leg. He was stuck. He could not undo the stroke, and he could not heal his own leg. He could not go forward, and he could not go back. For 13 years, every single night, he would pray that God would heal his leg. And every morning, he would wake up and curse because it didn't happen yet. Every day for 13 years straight, praying and cursing. It's a kind of gritty faith that some of us unfortunately know all too well. And sometimes life is like that. The man eventually went to his own grave, still with a crippled leg, and yet we know that he dances with the waymaker into all eternity. Will every situation of stuckness in our lives be resolved in the near or distant future? 
I don't know. Only God knows for sure. But it does seem wise to me for us to take some cues from the paradigmatic story of the Exodus, remembering first to follow God on the roundabout route, to take the long but short way. Second, to trust God with everything and to do a faithful something in the messy middle. And third, finally, to proceed forward always and only as way opens. For thanks be to God, there is a way maker, and he has made a way for the whole wide world. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Friends, our response this morning is a song called Waymaker. It's written by a woman in Nigeria. It feels important to say that, especially on Global Communion Sunday or World Communion Sunday. This is our sister in Christ, and it is a song that made its way over to North America and is sung by many churches. Um, as we sing, it's a good reminder uh, to us that with our brothers and sisters around the world, we have similar struggles and stuckness, and we have very different struggles and stuckness, but we worship the same God who is our way maker. It is the one that we trust and worship together. Would you stand and let's sing together? Yeah. 
stop working. You never stop. You never stop working. Waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. You are waymaker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. Sometimes when I have felt stuck in the past, I will say something about how I'm just taking it one step at a time. Thank you, Pastor Ross, for giving me new language about uh, as way opens. So whether you come this morning um, eager to participate and feast at this table or you're simply taking one step at a time as way opens, you are welcomed here at this table by Christ the one who calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. To help us celebrate this morning, we will remember some of the words from our Belhar Confession. They will be printed on the screen, and we will say them together. We believe in one holy, universal Christian church, the unity of the communion of saints, of the entire human family, and we believe that this unity of the people of God must be manifest and active in that we love one another, that we give of ourselves willingly and joyfully to one another, that we share one baptism together, that we eat of one bread and drink of one cup, that we confess one name, one Lord, for one cause, with one hope, which, which is, is the, the height, height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this table is for all of us, near and far, high and low, east and west, north and south. This table is for all of us, but it is not our table. It's not a Reformed Church in America table. It's not an American table. It's God's table for all of us. And it's a table of grace. So come and take your place at the table. All those who love God and all those who are learning to follow Jesus are welcome to this table of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread which we break together and the cup we share together may retell our common stories together and reshape our common bonds together, and remember our common grace together in the communion of the body and blood of, our, of your Son, Jesus Christ, the one in whose life and death you have torn down our divisions. And so may we be one with all who share this feast on this day of all days with all your children at every corner of your table. 
May we share this abundant cup with all those who thirst for your justice. And may we share this abundant bread with all those who hunger for your righteousness. May we be united with every corner of your story, united in hope, united in vision, united in purpose, united in ministry in every place. As this bread is Christ's body for us, send us from this table to be the body of Christ in all the world. Send us with a spirit of courage, a spirit of power and love, that we may be witnesses in all creation to the unending story of your word breathing life into the dust. Keep us faithful and fruitful and hopeful and peaceful until we come at last to the one table of your kingdom to feast with all your saints in the joy of your eternal realm with you and with your word through Christ and in Christ, the one who came for us, died for us, and rose for us, the one who prays even for us, the one who first taught us to pray these words saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. So we remember with the whole church world over that on the same night that Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread, and after he had blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And that same night, in the same manner, he took the cup, and he filled it. And he gave it to each of his disciples, saying to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Friends, the bread which we bless and the cup which we bless are for us our communion with our triune God. I'd like to invite those that are serving to come forward at this time. We will be partaking of communion this morning by intinction, which means you will come forward as you are ready. There's a little diagram on how you can do that, either on the outside or in the middle aisle, and then returning down these aisles. Uh, and then following uh, that, if you would like to stay in your seat, uh, you may do that, and there will be rovers, uh, Doug and Bob, who will serve you in your chair. There's also a gluten-free station right over here. My friends, these are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. Come, for all things are now ready.
Friends, let's pray together. Most gracious God, a meal as a strategy to change the world, that sure is a roundabout way. And the simple act of eating with a global community when what we need is the Red Sea parted, that too, oh God, is trusting you even while doing a faithful something. We believe, oh God, that you are making a way that you have made a way. And so by the mystery of this bread broken, may we all be set free from whatever is keeping us stuck in old life living. And by the mystery of this cup shared, may the way open for us to live in the new world of your kingdom come. We pray these things in the strong and precious name of Jesus, our way maker. Amen. As you go from this place, you can first visit the tables and grab a card to get to know your elders in your parish and then head to the gym for a variety of global foods and its choose-your-own-adventure line style. But first, hear this benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.